This is Docs in the Box podcast. A podcast about medicine, muscles, and more through the eyes of two physiatrists. I'm Dr. Amy West. And I'm Dr. Matthew Cowling. Hey guys, you're about to listen to episode number 23 of the Docs in the Box podcast with Dr. Jason Markle. I just wanted to take a quick second um, to talk about my procedure. I went down to um, Dr. Markle's practice in Denver at the Centennial Schultz Clinic and had um, some stem cells from bone marrow injected into my shoulder. And it was a great experience. Um, he's extremely talented and the entire Regenics team down there was absolutely amazing. Um, I can't rec- recommend these guys uh, enough. So before we, um, you guys listen to this episode, uh, be sure to, uh, to check him out. And uh, special thanks to their entire clinic for, for being amazing and taking care of me. Docs in the Box podcast, episode 23. Today we have a good friend, Dr. Jason Markle, who uh, practices regenerative medicine. You want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Matt. Uh, Jason Markle, um, osteopathic physician by training, physical medicine and rehabilitation um, by residency, then did a fellowship in interventional orthopedic physician, um, basically using orthobiologics to treat orth- uh, musculoskeletal injuries um, from spine injuries to peripheral joint injuries. Nice. So we had Ron Torrance on and he can give us a general rundown of the regenerative therapies um, that he has, but I just went to you recently to get a procedure done um, for my rotator cuff. So maybe we'll just start out by talking a little bit about that. Um, so I had a rotator cuff tear that was kind of chronic and I just found out about it and it was a full thickness tear. So I was thinking I was going to need surgery. And uh, I was in contact with Dr. Markle, who um, works at the Centennial Schultz Clinic in Denver. He reached out to me and said, hey, we just did a study looking at rotator cuffs um, using this stem cell procedure, um, something you might want to consider. So I ended up having the procedure. And now I'm like, what, two weeks post-op from it? Um, So do you want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, BMAC and what that is and and the rotator cuff study a little bit? Yeah, so bone marrow constrict, all your... Your, they call them stem cells, but all your, your, what they call medicinal signaling cells are all located in your bone marrow, sort of like the reservoir. So all your bone marrow has a bunch of different stem cells and progenitor cells. So we're able to concentrate those cells from a sample of bone marrow and inject them precisely under ultrasound guidance into soft tissue injuries. Um, and this has worked really well. We've been here uh, like, like I said, we're a Centennial Schultz Clinic. We've been here since early 2000s. The first people in the country that really utilize this type of therapy for orthopedic conditions. So about five, five to eight years ago, we, we started a randomized controlled trial looking at rotator cuff tears. And making the criteria there, we were like, okay, what tears do we think you can help with? And looking at the criteria, looking at MRI reviews, uh, full thickness, non-retracted rotator cuff cuffs. So meaning if it's just spread apart, it's not pulled off the bone retracted where it's just float floating in the wind essentially. So there's still something connected. The fibers are just torn within the tendon. And I, what you had posted for the most part of what I could tell looked like a non-retracted tendon and something I reached out to like, Hey, this is something we've had good success with. Um, because of that r- randomized controlled trial, it went on for about eight years. We just published, um, a long-term follow-up on that showed about 80 to 90% of them were able to heal as well as patients continue to do well long-term wise had very low retail rates. So I just said, Hey, this could potentially be an option for you. What do you define as success and what kind of patients have success? Um, 
for rotator cuff tears or yeah yeah, yeah so success um uh, we did a couple of different metrics um from a spotty as well as the different questionnaires that have been standardized from a shoulder perspective so success we defined as at least 75 percent or greater pain and function improvement and then there's other metrics uh, on those scales but that's really um in addition to pre and post mris that we had radiologists blinded um we we scaled them and graded them as well as other radiologists on just make sure all the um inner relator uh, inner reader reliability was okay um so yeah for the most part most patients continue to do well range of motion function and pain are they able to sleep do they have full range of motion are they able to do their adls and continue improvement from a strengthening standpoint now when it comes to the function you know the, one of the critiques you hear a lot is people talk about having follow-up scans and looking at, you know, the tendon and stuff. And even aside from that, I think, you know, you can have high function with a torn rotator cuff and, and little pain. Um, but I think it depends on like the level of the athlete. So like, you know, we see patients all the time. I'm sure you do too, Amy, that have a completely blown rotator cuff, but they're functional and they just don't really need that or they can get, a, get away with it. But would you agree that if people want to return to a higher level, they're probably going to need some kind of intervention? Yeah, most likely. Um, but as you mentioned, a lot of people, a lot of professional athletes, if you MRI every shoulder of overhead throwing athletes, every pitchers, 75% of them all have labral tears. Um, same thing with any overhead athlete. A lot of them have rotator cuff tears that they just live with and pretty high level functioning. Um, it's to that point, everybody has a threshold. It's like, when does it really become symptomatic? It's probably when, depending on your function and level of of performance is when that becomes symptomatic and whether or not it needs to be have, have something done to it or not. Cause you probably, I know we had talked previously that an orthopedic surgeon that talked to you said you probably had this tear for a long time. Yeah. And for me, I think the big deciding thing was I was fine with having a little pain with it, but I started to get like weakness when I was doing Olympic lifting and, and um, powerlifting and stuff. And that really bothered me. So that what made me try, that's what made me decide to seek intervention versus just, um, you know, dealing with it. Cause the pain was, uh, you know, all right, but the weakness we can't handle. Right, Amy? No weakness allowed. <laughs> no, if you can't PR, it's not worth it. That's what I'm saying. How long is the typical recovery time and how important is physical therapy in the recovery process? Yeah, physical therapy is a, yeah, physical therapy is critical no matter what. As PM, we're all PMNR docs, so we all know a good team approach is probably going to be the best approach. Um, the address any maybe subtly subtle biomechanical issues from the scapular dyskinesias type of things. So trying to make sure their neuromuscular control is getting getting on point to make sure it doesn't fall backwards of probably how he got the tear to begin with. Um, therapy is good. And usually the bell curve of when people start feeling better and stronger is between that three to six months. And we followed them uh, so far. We followed the longest is probably about seven, eight years follow-up. And most of those patients continue to do well with, with probably about less than 5% retear rates. Are you ever repeating the injection at some point in there? We have. Yep. Um, We've done sort of like booster injections with blood platelets. We've done booster injections with repeat bone marrow treatments. Um, only if someone's responding. So we're just initiating the body's healing response. So if we inject a tendon, let's say it goes three or four months, it looks 
like it's improving the patient's still symptomatic. Um, as long as we're improving, then doing another injection is not a bad idea. But we've also had patients like, let's say knee arthritis. We do, do it once and then they have zero improvement for whatever reason. More, um, more injections don't really improve anything. So every re response rate is a little bit different. Um, some people have very little response, um, which is unfortunate. We're still trying to figure that out, but similar to like law of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over, expecting different results. If we're not getting any improvement, it's probably pointless to really re redo it. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about the therapy thing, because I think this is a great point that you brought up, Amy. So I didn't really know what to expect in terms of like, you know, post-op from the procedure and, you know, I guess you think like when we do injections and stuff, or if you're injecting like corticosteroid and stuff like that, you think like, okay, you know, I'm going to go get this injection. My pain's going to be better than I just have to be careful, like not to mess it up. But it's like, no, there's like a, a really, you know, the recovery is a lot more intense in terms of like, you know, stiffness, range of motion in the shoulder joint. And then having physical therapy is something that at first I didn't even know if I was like going to do or try and do it myself. And then now I'm like, okay, I definitely need a good physical therapist on board to like help with it and treating it more like more seriously, like a, a procedure. Like if I were to get the surgery, this is how I would be recovering it. Right. So changing my mindset to think about it that way, I think is really important. Yeah. And we, we gave you a rehab protocol and we made those protocols with good physical therapists um, combined with what we know, what we're initiating the healing response. First phase of healing is an inflammatory response before the remodeling, remolding, and then some permanent changes that happen. So really during that inflammatory phase, the first couple of weeks, just low level, let's get some functionality back in. You still want some movement, uh, no movement's worse for anything. So that's why you want to still stimulate some tenocytes and some movements and get the joint functional. So you, you avoid complications like frozen shoulders or things like that. And then in the therapy is designed progressive loading to maximize some of that remodeling, remolding phase periods. Um, so we can accelerate it as much as we can from the healing standpoint. And there's other, some great uh, modalities. Physical therapy works now, um, blood flow restriction. Been using a lot of that where it maximizes um, your recovery, which minimizing your load you're putting on the tendon. So it just accelerates some of the, uh, so you don't lose muscle mass long-term, short-term wise, and then continues to load the tendon without uh, too much stress of it. My practice, we see uh, a lot of people who come in and ask for PRP. Um, we do a fair amount of it, but often we get patients who, either have terrible bone-on-bone -bone arthritis or they hear about some football player who went to Germany to have some stem cell procedure done and they come in asking for certain things that may not be necessarily reasonable or um, they might not fully understand exactly what they're asking for. Um, so how do you explain it to people and manage their expectations when it comes to regenerative? Once you've been doing it long enough, you sort of have to explain them. It's not magic pixie dust. There's indications for any medical treatment for PRP. Yeah. Mild to moderate issues works really well with more severe issues, bone marrow, talking about knee arthritis, bone on bone. Um, and where you put the injection is, is important too, depending on what you're treating. So I try to explain the patients like, Hey, listen, this isn't just something you get and you magically, everything's better. It's not going to cure the arthritis. It's not going to magically cure uh, degenerative issues like degenerative disc disease. It can help. Um, so I try to dismiss some of the, the myths and sort of like falsities out there and then go through, bake, break it down. It's like, okay, let's figure out what the problem is. 
okay, you've got really severe arthritis, your meniscus is extruded, you got bone marrow edema. It's like, what in that picture can we help with? And do we think if we help with that, is that going to give you the function and your goal, ultimate goal is what you want? And that's, that's ultimately understanding that what the patient's goal is. I saw a 60 year old lady today with terrible hip OA that she wants to get back to long distance running. I was like, that's stem cells isn't going to hit, help that. She's got a square peg in a round hole at this point. She had 0%, zero degrees internal rotation. I couldn't even flex her beyond 20 degrees. Um, and she expected stem cells to rebuild the hip. Um, so managing expectations and understanding expectations and figuring out if you can meet those expectations with the pathology you're working with and the limitations of what we can do and can't do. Um, so I try to differentiate uh, from like, okay, you got X, Y, or Z injections, it cures everything versus let's figure out the, what the problem is and do we have an option to treat it? And then will that option to treat it get you where, where you want to go functionally? So I work in an orthopedics department um, and there, there are some thoughts about PRP and, you know, so there's some feelings that potentially could be some BS and primarily I think it's because there are some physicians out there who either promise, over promise what PRP is capable of doing, or they're sort of out there doing things recklessly and charging people a lot of money. Um, and sometimes what can be sometimes inappropriate settings, so um, what would you say are some red flags for patients to look out for, but also for other providers who may not know much about PRP? What are some things that they should be aware of and how to know if, if a person providing this kind of therapy is legit? Yeah, no doubt. Um, advertising and how they evaluate someone. If someone's just like 10-minute evaluation, you have some knee pain, hey, do X, Y, or Z, it fixes everything. Um, people that are, like you said, promising the world and trying to treat this and everything under the sun. People that treat like neuro, neurodegenerative issues. If someone's like, oh, we do stem cells IV for Parkinson's or ALS or some of these others, as well as orthopedic issues, that's probably a red flag, um, as well as training. Um, they're like, oh yeah, I took a weekend course, um, have no ultrasound, have no image guidance, and don't know really how to do Im image guidance injections. So a blind injection gets, we know from steroid injections, get there probably about 20% of the time with some of these biologics, you really need to be pinpoints, not steroids are like a hand grenade, close is good enough. We'll get some sort of clinical benefit. But with this stuff, you really need to be pinpoint from a diagnosis. So if they don't know how to do image guidance, and then if they're not a physician, so there's a lot of chiropractors and PAs, nurse practitioners doing these injections for like big orthopedic practices, like the surgeon doesn't want to do injections, so it just gives their PA these injections to do, but they haven't been trained all that well. If, if anything, they've trained by the surgeon on the job training for blind injections. It's like, yeah, it's not the, the best quality of injection. So um, image guidance is a big thing, and then their evaluation is a big thing. Make sure they're treating the right things um, or probably two big ones. Do you also ever sign people up at a time? I've seen this. Like patients come in and it's like this person told me I need five PRP injections and like they wanted me to pay up front for like five of them in a row, row something like that and I it sounds a little bit long to me yeah that's just as someone like you said a money grab it's like hey let's figure out a system where we can maximize our our 
our cost of the treatment and, and see what happens and not knowing what they're doing um, and not knowing sort of how PRP works. Like I do a single PRP and that's all I do. Uh, it's not a series of three. It's not 10 injections. I do it once and see how well you respond to it. Cause I know I'm, I'm treating it right. I'm treating what needs to be treated. And we see how well you respond to it versus like, Hey, more is always better. And yeah, then in terms of the, yeah. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. oh then um, what they're injecting now, a lot of research has come up like JAMA published this PRP study. Um, it showed zero effects of PRP for NEOA and tendinopathies. But then we dive into the research, like the PRP itself, they measured the baseline of platelets and it's basically below your baseline. So it's not even platelet rich plasma, it's platelet poor plasma. So whatever machine they're using really does a shitty job at concentrating platelets. So dose of platelets is a big thing too. So knowing what, where they're getting the platelets from machine is sort of making it here. We, we're lucky. We have a flexible lab platform, so I can, it's a full lab where I tell them concentrations, formulations, um, so I can tailor make it to what I'm treating. So I know my dose of platelets, I can control the dose of platelets and depending on what I'm treating, but a lot of bedside centrifuge machines that people use make kind of shitty PRP um, and they don't even know it and they don't get good results because of it. Like if someone takes, I have a lot of patients come to me, it's like, oh, I've tried PRP. It's like, okay, how much blood did they take? Oh, they took two little tubes like this and spun it down and made PRP and shoved it in my joint. I'm like, okay, it's probably not a huge amount of platelets they put in there. Um, Matt, with you, how much blood did we take from you just to make a couple extra PRP to put in with the bone marrow? Honestly, like 20 vials or something crazy. Yeah. Um, so that that's something we, we're concentrating. It. You need more blood to get a higher concentration of platelets. So if they take a pretty low concentration of platelets or a low amount of blood, there's not a whole lot of platelets in that to really make PRP. Um, so that's a big, big red flag. We're like, oh yeah, took five minutes. Doctor pulled one vial of blood, spun it right in front of me, injected it. That that's not knowing what, what you're injecting. That seems to be an issue in the literature that the concentrations are all over the place. Um, that's a huge issue right now from a standardization from literature publications, who's publishing what, and then, what, what exactly are you publishing from? You have to know the dose uh, concentration. You have to know all this stuff. And it's, yeah, it's all over the map right now. So over the next five, 10 years, we'll try to fine tune it. Um, we just had a big uh, uh, conference a couple of weeks ago. And that was a big thing there from all the, the higher ups, um, myself included. I'm on the board of Interventional Orthopedic Foundation um, where we're trying to standardize um, publishing. Um, so going to these people that are, are about to publish, like, Hey, listen, these are the standards. Why are you going to publish a shitty study when it really doesn't add any benefit to what we already know or don't know? So hopefully we can sort that out in the next few years. And going back to with the imaging, I think, you know, a lot of you guys have really, really good training. The ultrasound skills you guys have are incredible. Um, and you know, ultrasound is a dynamic study, right? So you're able to see things with the ultrasound in my shoulder that, you know, the MRI wasn't necessarily revealing for, and then also to be able to treat, you know, different areas where, you know, like you can see like basically like inflammation of entrapped nerves and other things like that. So one big thing that I noticed and like, Amy, you're probably used to this too. The system that we're used to is, you know, a patient would come in and they would have like, you know, 
pain in their hip, right? And then you do a, an injection and just one injection and you kind of see like, okay, you know, did that work or did it not work? And it's kind of, you know, uh, the whole diagnostic and therapeutic approach to that. Whereas when you have the ultrasound and you can actually see pathology in the joint, then you're able to, you know, disperse the medications out in a better way. Would you agree with that? Yeah, you can be more of a, preci a precision uh, diagnosticianer, right? So if you can diagnose outside the shoulder pain, okay, general rotator cuff tendinopathy, let's diagnose a little bit deeper, um, get more fine-tuned from your diagnosis. So your treatment can be a little bit more precision-based. Um, we're lucky, in, in, and that's really a design uh, flaw for if people are in this high-volume practice, um, they really don't have the time to sit there, examine things, break out the ultrasound. I take an hour with patients trying to figure this stuff out because it is cash-based, right? You want to make sure you're getting the best diagnosis because uh, a lot of times I get one shot at getting someone better. So we definitely uh, do our due diligence trying to figure out what, what the real problem is um, so we can treat it. Like I said before, I, I work in an orthopedics department and, and there's been quite a push lately for more regenerative therapies, especially for the physicians or their PAs to start doing this. Um, and I'm the only physiatrist in the department and um, I was wondering what your thoughts are as far as um, who do you think should be doing these procedures, especially people who may not have advanced ultrasound training. I mean, a lot of times, a lot of surgeons are learning ultrasound in a weekend. I mean, obviously they see lots of, you know, real life anatomy in the ORs, but as far as the, the ultrasound training, they sort of kind of pick it up at conferences here and there. Um, and then, you know, they're, they're doing some of these procedures. So I was wondering what your thoughts are about who should be doing these and, and what level of ultrasound training is necessary. Yeah, and there's a big push. Um, so I'm on the on the board now of Interventional Orthobiologics Foundation. Um, and with that, uh, we're working with, in conjunction with other organizations, especially orthopedic surgery organizations called um, Biologics Associations. Um, and that's basically the orthopedic surgical realm of really fine-tuning some of this orthobiologics coming out. And we're actually going to be training a lot of these orthopedic surgeons on really how to do some in-office injections, guidance, um, a little bit more in detail. So I think in the future, there's definitely our courses and some other courses. Dr. Don Buford also does orthosano um, out of, out of uh, where is he, Vegas now, um, where he trains nurse practitioners, physician assistants, as well as orthopedic surgeons on, on really how do these do these injections in the office appropriately. So yeah, just um, the nilly willy. It's like, oh, I'm orthopedic surgeon. I know how to inject this. They just inject it similar to steroids. It's it's not fraudulent, but it's just ignorant in at a point and making sure someone has the right training on how to do these injections before they just getting into it is definitely important. In orthopedic surgical world, and some of those top organizations are recognizing that and now are slowly trying to train some of their physicians on on how to do that. What are some of the bigger barriers that you've like encountered practicing with orthobiologics? Uh, the misconceptions for sure. Um, Cause like I said, everything's their magic pixie dust. Um, and for us, it's the majority of our practice. We research it, we publish on it. Um, so we're, we're sort of in, in the meat and potatoes and, and in the weeds from the detail standpoint. Um, so dismaying some of the, the misconceptions out there. 
and then obviously the fact that it's an uncovered procedure uh, from a traditional insurance standpoint is always a point of contention um, trying to have patients understand like, hey, listen, there's good evidence. There's level one studies for PRP for a lot of different things, whether it be spine, joint, tendon, arthritis, because PRP is probably 80% of my practice is all PRP based versus bone marrow. Um, so there are good research studies out there and trying to understand it's like, okay, this is a medical procedure. It's not a big, uh, like similar to like a drug company, how drugs get just pushed through and then start pushing, uh, pushed through a medical office uh, from a prescriber. This is a medical, medical procedure that really from an insurance standpoint, they don't know how to deal with it. Um, so I think we're probably about three to five years from major insurance carriers covering a lot of these um, biologics, but right now it's, it's not covered. Um, so that's probably the biggest barrier we have. When you say stem cells, um, are you, can you explain a little bit what exactly that means? Because I know there's some rules here, especially in the United States about what exactly is allowed to be used and what's allowed to be manipulated outside the body, et cetera. So can you explain a little bit like what that is and what BMAC is as opposed to what people may perceive as stem cells? 2008, um, our clinic here, um, the original stem cell injection we did and researched was a culture expanded stem cell. So you can take your bone marrow, you can pluck out the stem cell you want, put that mesenchymal stem cell or medicinal signaling cell, whatever you want to call it, in a Petri dish, expand that to a bigger number. You have a purified, expanded, higher dose of stem cells to use for an injection. So we are only people in the country doing this. Um, in early 2000s, 2005, 2008, FDA came into our, our clinic here in Colorado. We actually still have patient samples in, in storage and saw what we were doing and spent about a month in our, in our office and eventually drew a line in the sand. It's like, hey, listen, you're taking someone's cells, manufacturing them, and then putting back into somebody that's created a cell, cellular drug. So that process needs to be regulated by a drug company. Um, so you can't do that without a full FDA completion. So the full three phases. So then we went to them like, okay, we can't do that. But where, where's the line in the sand where it's beyond mini, minimal manipulation, like you mentioned, um, and that's the concentration of bone marrow. So what they will allow is to take a sample similar to what we do with Matt. We took a sample of his bone marrow, concentrated it. So got rid of all the other stuff, just the cellular fraction of the bone marrow, the bone marrow concentrate. And that's legal within the same day medical procedure practice. It's not considered a cellular drug. So at that point it's minimally manipulated. So you can use that for any, anything you feel is medically fit um, from the FDA perspective legally. Um, and then same thing with blood platelets. You can take blood platelets, isolate them, concentrate them, but that's all you can do. You can't ma manipulate them. And really with platelets, they're non-cellular. So you, outside of concentrating them, there's not a whole lot to do with them. So that tend to be the, the line in the sands uh, from the FDA perspective of what's legal and what's not legal. And then you get the whole world of birth tissue products, uh, amniotic membranes, amniotic stem cells, all these. And we've studied them, um, Brown University, UC Davis, um, about there's countless products on the market. The problem with those, we've tested them. There's no living stem cells in these products. Um, they're marketed with, by drug reps, like, hey, they're living stem cells, inject them, stem cells off the shelf. But when you look into them, they're basically have some low level growth factors and just dead, dead tissue in it. In the registration that company made 
to make that product is basically a dead tissue product anyway. So the fact that, and it's this whole med legal world right now, um, Medicare just um, did this clawback system where physicians that were supposedly billing Medicare for these amniotic tissue injections, Medicare over the last five years just came back this week and said, we're just going to take all that money back because it was legal. Um, so there's a lot of physicians in the, in the next few months that may be out of a job um, because of that. It's crazy. Yeah, it is. Wow. So why would somebody go to like Panama to get stem cells versus coming to like Denver? Yeah, and that's that culture expansion I mentioned. Um, so we also have a clinic in Grand Cayman. So when the FDA made that, that line in the sand from our clinic here, we sent all of our safety data to the FDA equivalent to Grand Cayman. They're, they're also allowed in Panama. And Cayman allowed us to basically do medical tourism similar to Panama, you can go to Mexico, but no one wants to go to Mexico because uh, who knows what you'll get there. Um, so yeah, so you can do that legally outside the country. Uh, we have Regenix as a corporation is, is going to put a clinic in, um, in off the coast of China um, to do culturing as well. So there's a few, there'll eventually be a few places around the world you can actually do this. Um, like I travel down the Grand Cayman four, four or five times a year for two week stents and treat patients down there that want that, that super concentrated uh, stem cell injection. I have my cells stored there. Can you talk a little bit about lipoaspirate and are you doing that in your clinics? Um, I know there's been some discussion as to the potentially you might be able to get a higher yield in lipoaspirate versus bone marrow or, or in older patients, lipoaspirate might be a better choice. Um, so what are your thoughts about that? Over the last few years, if we looked at how many cells are in adipose, there are some stem cells in adipose tissue um, where the FDA, that minimal manipulation to really use fat sample really well, you need to digest it because the fat's stuck in collagen. So you digest it with a collagenase to break down the fat to extract the cells. That's called stromal vascular fraction. Now the FDA said that's beyond minimal manipulation outside the body. So right now, the only thing you can do is aspirate fat and use a fat graft. Um, so there's not a whole lot of studies done on that. There's one on rotator cuff tears with uh, wheelchair patients. Uh, Dr. Malenga published that um, in the Northeast. And then there's another uh, pretty nice, nicely well-done study by Dr. Ken Montner out of Emory, where he put the two head-to-head -head bone marrow contrib with the fat graft for knee arthritis. And they actually both did relatively well. The, uh, the bone marrow did better symptomatically, uh, but the adipose did far beyond the control and did really well too. So the FDA says you can basically use a fat graft right now. And those are probably the two indications where sometimes I do use it, um, but not, not all the time. And I do use it for some patients. Um, like if someone has bad knee arthritis, let's say both knees are bad. If you take someone's bone marrow constrict, that dose of bone marrow constrict is really good for one joint versus dividing it by two and using it for multiple joints. You're sort of robbing Peter the pay Paul from a dosing standpoint. So sometimes I, I'll choose one joint with the bone marrow, the other with adipose and put a little PRP in, in both of those as well. So there's definitely indications for it. In the med legal world, even if you're doing a fat graft, the, this term called homologous use comes in into play. Um, basically the FDA created this term homologous use, like, okay, are you, 
taking bone marrow, putting back in bone sounds good. It's going back to where it should go. Um, putting fat back into a joint may or may not be the best thing for homologous use. So the legality of that right now is sort of still under question, but really the problem with the FDA too, it's an enforcement issue. They can send you a little letter, slap you on the, on the hand, but outside of that, it's not stopping anybody from doing it, um, for doing anything they want. Um, bigger, big companies they're going after to stop them from fraudulent practicing, like the amniotic companies and other things like that. But from a, a legality standpoint, all they can do is send you a nasty letter, but they can't throw you in jail. They can't take your license and they can't really do anything to discourage you from doing it, which also is why the field is sort of like this wild west right now. No, like Regenix is probably like the most well-known. How many other like companies and things are there out there doing this? Is it, I mean, are there tons? Um, there's not tons. There's definitely independent clinics doing it. And then the other big group is maybe Blue Tail. And that's probably, they're a lot smaller from a scope standpoint, but it's probably the only big group I know that are more like a physician network group. Um, all do their own processing and their own techniques, essentially. Um, and most of their those physicians are well-trained too. Um, they try to do it well uh, for what I know of them. Um, but outside of that, I don't know too many other big groups. Let's say that there's like a, a physician who wants to refer a patient down to you um, to be seen and they know that they want to try like a regenerative procedure with the patient, but they don't really know, um, you know, what they want. Now, is there a process by which they can like consult with you like over the phone or do like a video or something? And then before the patient comes down there and then, or how does that kind of work? Yeah. Um, luckily with COVID, it's really made um, telemedicine accessible everywhere and sort of like a standard now. So if someone thinks they want to try something, uh, we, a lot of times we do telemedicine evals where they send all the imaging we have. We'll do sort of like a, a self-assessment self as much as we can. And based off of history, we can't do a physical, but history imaging, um, we can have a good idea and give them at least a ballpark. It's like, hey, this is something that could potentially help. And then if if that's something we want to do, then we plan for them come into the clinic. Some of what we did for you, it's like, yes, this is something I can help with. Let's get you in, spend a good amount of time examining things, and then make, finalize our game plan and go from there. Nice. Yeah. Um, I thought that, so the process, um, was, was very good. But one thing that I think people don't understand, uh, and that I didn't fully comprehend too. So the model that you guys use is very comprehensive for patients in terms of like, I, you guys have information over there about like a focusing on diet and like, you know, like proper, like sleep habits and stuff like that. So that people are maximizing, you know, the, getting the maximum benefits from the treatment that they're getting. And I think we in general, uh, Amy and I, maybe not so much so, cause we do this all the time, but physicians in general do a really bad job of emphasizing lifestyle around the procedures and stuff that we're doing. Yeah, that's a good question. A lot of the times when I'm evaluating patients, like if you're metabolic, if you're, even if you're overweight on a lot of other medications, blood pressure medications, statin drugs, it's like, you need to get a lot of that, your own internal metabolism right before we start treating you with your own biologic, because if someone is a diseased host, we're probably going to get inferior outcomes. So a lot of times I'm counseling patients like, Hey, listen, let's clean up X, Y, or Z. Let's give it three months. Let's see how you feel. That might even help with your pain. And then 
And then if you're still having some discomforts, you're better host, then we can consider maybe doing a biologic. Um, set the patient up for success. And that's what's great about the sort of like direction you're taking your own career in. It's like that's can help so many different patients. Um, and it's easy, but just getting the motivation and, and understanding what the patient needs from a diet, nutrition, functional, functional medicine standpoint, and getting them in line and then seeing if, if we need to do anything. And is this the direction you always thought your career was going to go in? I mean, how did you end up in this line of, of line of work? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I never wanted to be a doctor <laughs> and I was, I played baseball early on and then got, became like an athletic trainer in college, sports medicine. It sounded cool, but the idea of going to school for 15 years, I was like, that's stupid. Um, and then I've, started realizing probably my junior year of college that being an athletic trainer the ceiling is is lower than i'd like it to be so then team trainer i worked with at, at florida state is named dr stowers um he was doing a lot of like prolotherapy and some re- early old school regenerative medicine treatments on some of our football athletes and um i looked into it as like oh that's pretty cool um and that got me down interested in the role of like osteopathic medicine DO stuff. So then I was like, okay, let's go to DO school. Found a good DO school down in South Florida. And they actually taught me some prolotherapy and prolotherapy. If you're not familiar, it's hypertonic dextrose that you inject into tendons and ligaments that similar to the blood platelets, but a little bit different mechanism where you're basically irritating and trying to stimulate your body's own natural healing mechanism, try to get some improvement from a pain and function. And that's sort of like the gateway drug for some of this regenerative stuff. And then matriculated through med school, uh, found some research on PRP and stuff like that. Um, and from there I was just hooked and, and really I found out that the only people at the time, this was early two thousands. And I found out the only people really doing it in the country was actually this clinic, um, at that time. And it was funny. I called the clinic and I talked to one of the doctors here and asked him if I, Oh, I want to come shadow you. Um, let me, let me figure out what you're doing. This sounds pretty cool. They're like, no, it was like top secret wouldn't let anybody in anybody out. Uh, so it was really funny. And then I continued matriculating. Um, so then I basically like, okay, I want to do orthopedics, non-surgical stuff, uh, found PMNR, love that. And then this clinic opened up their fellowship program. And then I was like, ha, now I call them again. It's like now, now figure out how to do that. And then I basically spent four years of my re- uh, residency trying to become a good candidate to come out here. And luckily, uh, I applied and got the one, one spot and haven't looked back, been here ever since. I went to one of your eugenics courses roughly three or four years ago. I remember when I was there at the conclusion of the course, one of the things that um, we watched you do was uh, there was a fellow, I believe, who was having some of her own PRP and PLP injected. Uh, I'm not quite sure. I, I don't remember what her issue was exactly, but what I remember you're doing is that you sort of gave her many injections like in and around her spine, her hips, or like a side joint. It was sort of um, uh, multiple injections done at once. So is this something that typically you do or is, was that a special case? Sure. Yeah. Um, I know who you're talking about, Marin, Dr. Jerome. She was one of our fellows. She's actually coming back in a few weeks uh, to finish up her fellowship because it got shortened from COVID. Um, but 
but yeah, so she knew I was, I was teaching. So she had her PRP drawn, has some lumbar spine issues, some mild degeneration, has a low level radiculopathy going on that screws up her hip. So when we're treating, we call it a functional joint model. So we're treating someone's spine. We don't just treat like pain generator model. You just treat the facet, treat the epidural, treat one thing um, from a functional joint standpoint with PRP, it acts a little bit differently. So it can affect different tissues. So we try to improve number one, stability of the spine. So we inject a bunch of ligaments around the spine. So like supraspinous, interspinous, your dorsal SI joints that help stability from a ligament standpoint. And then we inject the, her facets to help the articulations and then did some epidurals around the disc and around the nerves that helps the neuromuscular recruitment essentially. So we're trying to treat as comprehensive as we can um, to try to get maximize our benefit. And there's been a couple of studies on that, on looking at knee, uh, knee arthritis, treating intraarticular combined with meniscus, MCL, ACL. There's been, we published a cervical spine treatment, um, that same model with whiplash. Whiplash, we know we damage multiple structures and whiplash. You damage supraspinous, interspinous ligaments, you know, damage facets, damage the discs as well as get some nerve irritation. So when we're treating a spine, we'll, we're treating all those different areas. So it's a little bit different of a mentality when you're using biologics than like your traditional, what we're learned in PMR or any kind of pain practice. Um, they're just looking at pain generators, looking at one or two spots, like, okay, let's try this. Let's try that. Um, this is a different mentality. Uh, we have more tools in our tool belt to use. So we take a little bit different approach. Especially, you know, I, that's one thing that I really liked when I was there too, is that, you know, it's like, all right, so you're going through the process of like getting the bone marrow and everything. Right. And it's like, um, while you have it, like, why not treat what you can is a kind of another way that I think of it too. You know, if you're seeing pathology there, um, I think it's just so difficult a lot of times to find the pain generator. And we still don't even know half the time, especially when you're just injecting like steroid into people and just causing a big kind of anti-inflammatory response. So yeah, it's interesting. I hear people debate that all the time and I, I can definitely see the value in it. Yeah. And it's served our patients well for the, for the last 20 years. So, um, we've, when we publish on it and every, luckily with Regenix, the way it started, every patient we've ever treated gets enrolled in a registry. So we've followed patients for 20 years. Um, it's probably close to 100,000 injections between us and all of our Regenix affiliates. Um, so we know what works, what doesn't work, what our outcomes are. Um, and we can compare that to some normalized data that we know of, like steroids um, and some other data on the, those lines. Um, and we think we're, we're doing okay. And luckily, it's safe, right? And that's number one when we're doing injections. Um, if you're just injecting someone with steroids, like rotator cuff, you're just inundated with steroids every three weeks for a couple months, you're going to rupture it because we know it's toxic to the tenocytes there. Um, that's why everyone's always scared to do multiple steroid injections, but this stuff, um, it's the exact opposite. Um, if it helps more can be better, but it's, it's probably medically not indicated, but it's not going to cause any harm for what we know. Um, speaking just on that topic real quick, Ron talked a lot of, I think about corticosteroid. What are your thoughts about lidocaine and, and that being uh, toxic to the tenocytes? Yeah. So, um, most of what we inject from an anesthetic is ropivacaine. 
Um, and we've done that. Ron probably quoted, um, or if he talked anything about it, we we did a serial with culture expanded stem cells uh, with tenocytes essentially. Um, dilutions of lidocaine, ropivacaine, bupivacaine to see toxicities. And ropivacaine came out to be the least toxic. It, it really at the levels and we dilute it to basically 0.0125%. Um, and it's not toxic at all. And we still get an anesthetic um, response there. Um, so that's typically what we're using. Problem is it's just more expensive. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's always interesting. Amy, I don't know. Do you guys hear that debate? I hear that debate all the time in like orthopedics and sports medicine. Yeah. Yeah, around. All right, Dr. Markle, this has been great. Um, I will link the um, in the show notes. You, you're on Instagram, right? Where else can people find you? You can find me on Instagram. I actually have a YouTube channel um, that I've posted some um, videos on there as well as centennialschultz.com. Um, and, but Instagram is probably, we're also on Facebook. Instagram is probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. If anybody has any questions, you can always uh, slide into the DM. Um, and that's always pretty easy to respond there. Awesome. All right, guys. All yeah, right, it's been great, guys. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.